In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the traditional scriptural and catechetical understanding of the church, there are five sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. First, there is the sin of Cain against Abel, which is murder. The deliberate taking of innocent life from, at any stage from conception to natural death. As it says in Genesis 4.10, the blood of Abel cried out to the Lord from the ground. Deliberate killing of the innocent insults the image of God present in each and every human life. The second of these is the oppression of the Israelites under Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord says in Exodus 3.7, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry against their taskmasters. It's the sin of oppressing, not just individuals or small groups of people, but entire nations or races on a wide scale, as is often seen in genocide, imperialism, and colonialism. It destroys the beautiful mosaic of cultures and peoples that the Lord saw fit to create for this earth. Thirdly, there is the cry of the foreigner, the widow, or the orphan. Our Lord said in Exodus 22:20, "You shall not oppress or afflict a resident alien, for you were once aliens residing in the land of Egypt. You shall not wrong any widow or orphan. If you wrong them and they cry out to me, I will surely listen to their cry." Injustice to the weak and vulnerable tears at the very fabric of what it means to be a civilized people, substituting the whim of the stronger in place of justice and mercy. Fourth, we have injustice to the wage earner. We are told in Deuteronomy 24:15, "On each day you shall pay the servant's wages before the sun goes down, since the servant is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, the servant will cry out to the Lord, and you will be held guilty before me." We must never take advantage of those who have helped us by their labor in denying them their just due. To do so debases the very concept of freedom, substituting a kind of slavery in its place. Finally, there is the sin of the Sodomites. The angel of the Lord said to Sodom, "The outcry reaching the Lord against those here is so great, and He would destroy the city." The sin of the Sodomites was sexual depravity. Such depravity undercuts the proper ordering of human love and destroys the family. The first and most vital cell of society. All sin is bad, of course, but the scriptures, and hence the church, highlight these five sins as crying out to heaven because they go against the natural order that God establishes to govern human beings—an order given to us so that we might live above the law of the jungle, in which the strong prey upon the weak. Those who commit these sins and do not repent. Will feel the full wrath of God, whether in this life or in the next. But in addition to highlighting the five sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance, the Church also gives us five precepts. Unlike sins, which are something that we are meant to definitely not do, a precept is a positive command that we are meant to fulfill. I don't know if it's intentional on the part of the Church or not. But following the five precepts corresponds to avoiding the pitfalls of the five sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. The first precept of the Church is that we must attend Mass 
on Sundays and holy days of obligation. This duty corresponds to the slavery that the Israelites suffered in Egypt. Because they were kept in slavery and not given the freedom to honor the Sabbath and to obey the Lord according to their own law. By failing to attend Mass and failing to rest from servile labor on Sundays and holy days, we essentially return ourselves to the condition of slaves, even if voluntarily so. The second precept is that we must make a confession at least once a year. By the way, in this instance, the Church is setting forth an absolute bare minimum because she recognizes that in some parts of the world, people don't have regular access to a confessor. We are fortunate here that we can confess much more frequently, and we should. The precept to confess corresponds to the sin of Cain, which is the taking of innocent life. If we fail to make a regular confession, we are, in effect, killing our souls. We are endangering the hope of eternal life that was given to us in baptism. The third precept is that we should observe the days of fasting and abstinence prescribed by the Church. Most people are familiar with the fasting and abstinence required during Lent. But many, unfortunately, have lost the habit of observing the traditional Friday abstinence from meat year-round, which is still required unless another form of penance is substituted. Failing to observe these penitential practices evidences a a lack of solidarity with the poor and the suffering, who endure much worse deprivations by necessity, not by choice. Fasting and abstinence guards us especially against the sin of ignoring the cry of the foreigner, the widow, or the orphan. We are thus taught to place limits on our own desire for the sensual satisfactions of food, so as to counter selfishness and indifference to those who are poor and vulnerable in our midst. Fourth, we are given the precept that we should provide for the Church according to our means. We owe this not as a matter of mere charity, but as justice. Because the Church is our spiritual family, and we have a duty to support our family. And also because the Church herself needs our contributions so as to aid others in need. Abiding by the the commandment to tithe corresponds to avoiding the sin of injustice to the wage earner. Finally, the Church gives us the precept that we are to receive the Eucharist at least once a year during the Easter season. Again, that's a bare minimum, because the Church recognizes that in some parts of the world, confession and or the Eucharist might not be readily available. Here in our diocese, we certainly have regular access to both. This precept is important because the Eucharist is the true flesh of Christ, his body and blood that comes to us in the forms of bread and wine. It is, as Jesus says in today's gospel, the food that endures for eternal life. When we feed on the Eucharist, we receive a share of the merits of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so the reality of the Eucharist stands in special contrast to the sin of Sodom. The crucifixion was Christ's willing sacrifice of his own body for our redemption. By contrast, in committing acts of sexual depravity, a person sacrifices another's body for their carnal satisfaction. One is feeding on the flesh that brings life. The other is lusting after an encounter with the flesh that brings suffering and discord. One uplifts in love. The other mires us in selfishness and base desires that destroy our harmony with God and neighbor. 
It's this diametric opposition between the Eucharist and the sins of the flesh that I want to especially focus on today in light of the current scandal in the church. As many of you know, recently the former Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Theodore McCarrick, was removed from the College of Cardinals following revelations of his predatory sexual behavior over many years. This scandal exploded recently because two men made allegations that Archbishop McCarrick abused them when they were minors some years ago. But the sad fact of the matter is that while these allegations against minors were only made recently, for many years it was widely known, factually by some, hearsay by others, that McCarrick had pushed himself on seminarians under his tutelage in New Jersey and Washington, D.C. Seminarians who were not minors, but who were certainly young, vulnerable, and looked up to him as a spiritual father. Unfortunately, one of the problematic things that one often hears in relation to the McCarrick scandal, and that was heard as well during the wave of priest abuse scandals that hit the church back in 2002, or that we sometimes hear with similar scandals in other institutions, is that the problem is the abuse of power, or in the church, clericalism. It's a half-truth that clouds the issue. Yes, McCarrick abused his power according to these allegations. But the deeper question is what he abused his power to accomplish, which was the satisfaction of his sexual appetite. And that's the larger question for the church. Because the fact of the matter is that there are many Christians, following the impetus of the larger world, who want to ignore or downplay the sixth commandment that demands chastity for all persons. Many want to believe that the sexual sins that the Christian faith enumerates as being no real big deal, if they are even sins at all. But then to pretend that we can draw some bright line around sexual sin when it crosses over the line into force or predation. In saying any of this, I don't mean to suggest that we don't draw moral and legal distinctions between different types of sin involving the Sixth Commandment. We certainly do nor to suggest that anyone is perfect in chastity. All fall short of the glory of God. But the church, and we as individual Christians, must always proclaim the truth. A truth resplendent with the same mercy and understanding that comes from he who is the author of the law. But always the truth, whether in season or out of season, whether it wins us friends or enemies. The fact is, when we go soft on sins against chastity in general, as many Christians have, including many leaders in the church, then we will eventually lose the gumption to stand up to the worst, most abusive manifestations of sexual lust. I'm willing to bet that many in the church who were in a position to know about the former cardinal's behavior but did nothing about it are those who would also be hesitant to challenge the prevailing culture forcefully and publicly by proclaiming the tenets of the church's understanding of human sexuality. G.K. Chesterton famously said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That's true in general, of course, but it's particularly true when it comes to the church's teaching on sex. Modern man has decided that Christian chastity is too high a burden and has cast himself down the slippery slope of sexual liberation hoping that there is a sturdy backstop down there somewhere. But the only backstop is the law of the jungle. I hear people all the time saying that the church's requirement of celibacy for priests and religious 
is outdated and unhealthy, or that her understanding of marriage as an exclusive and an unbreakable bond in this life oversimplifies the complexities of married life in this world, or that the principle that unmarried persons should not be sexually active just isn't realistic anymore, or that preventing all manner of sexual desire from being freely fulfilled is prejudiced and puritanical. It should be no surprise then that when this is the posture that is adopted regarding sexual desire, that some go one step further and pursue its fulfillment in ways that are abusive, coercive, or disrespect others. When we posit sexual fulfillment as the highest and most irresistible of goods, as our culture seemingly does, then some will feel no compunction about stepping on others in order to obtain it for themselves. And correspondingly, it should be no surprise when those who know about these abusive and predatory behaviors are unwilling to confront the perpetrators. Confusion about some aspects of the Sixth Commandment inevitably leads to a lack of forcefulness and resolve about all of it. We can't speak truth to power unless we first have an understanding of the truth. This, the antidote to this madness in this things as well as all things is the Eucharist which is not the flesh taken in fulfillment of base desires, but receiving the body and blood of our Lord given over for our salvation. The Eucharist fulfills the genuine longing for divine intimacy that we all have, the intimacy that unchaste actions and desires are merely distorted substitutes for. St. Paul tells us, put away the corruption of deceitful desires. Put away the excuses and justifications for sin and especially those for sexual immorality, which so easily corrupt our whole being. Rather, work for the food that endures for eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.